Turn with me as you did just a few moments ago to the Gospel of Mark. And once more to the latter portion of the book where we find Mark's report of what we sometimes call the Passion Narrative, the account of Jesus' betrayal and trial and suffering and death. I want us to begin reading in chapter 15, verse 33. So Mark 15, 33 through 41. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him, and there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Father, as always, we simply pause to ask your help. We need help to hear rightly. I need help to speak rightly. We need help to take what we hear and what I speak and believe and apply and act upon it. So do all of this for us in these next few moments and as we go out seeking to put your word into practice. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It is, as I said already, that time of year when we are thinking very directly about the events that transpired on what is sometimes called Holy Week. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey and to shout of Hosanna, his last supper in the upper room, his prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane, his final words to his disciples before his arrest, the mockery of a trial that he endured, the cowardice of Pilate, the bloodthirsty crowd chanting crucify. And of course, we think about the mocking and the beating and the spitting and the torture that he suffered and his being nailed hands and feet to the cross and his seven marvelous sayings from that cross and all of it coming to crescendo on Resurrection Sunday. Surely these things are in our minds and in the minds of many people on this week leading up to Easter. And as we ponder those momentous events, and especially as we picture the scenes surrounding Jesus' trial and torture and crucifixion, as we see the events passing before our mind's eyes, there are probably a number of faces in the crowd that capture our imagination and that we readily remember were at the scene that day. Most of all, of course, I hope we think of the bloody countenance of Jesus himself, right? 
crowned with thorns, crying out in agony to his Father, and yet resolved to carry it all through for the sake of our salvation. But then we also think about other faces in the crowd as well. The crowds in particular, those faces red hot with emotion, eyes wide, veins popping out of their foreheads as they chant, crucify, crucify. I can picture that. Maybe you imagine the soldiers in your mind's eye with their Roman regalia and the plumes arising from their helmets, and you see them falling down on their knees in mock adoration of the king of the Jews, and then one of them finally realizing truly this man was the son of God. You may be captivated also by thinking about those two thieves, one on either side of Jesus, hanging on their own crosses. And even amid all the tumult, we may read these verses and notice the conspicuous absence from the scene of some faces that we would expect to be there. Some of Jesus' closest associates, the twelve disciples, have left him and fled in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now Peter, of course, and one other disciple eventually came back around in order to eavesdrop on the trial of Jesus, but Peter, as you may remember, eventually took his leave after being questioned by some bystanders and denying three times that he was a follower of Jesus. And so when Jesus came to die, while one of the twelve, we're told in John chapter 19, had followed him all the way to Golgotha, it would seem that the rest of them had gone into hiding. So there are all these memorable faces in the crowd as we read of Jesus' suffering and his trial and his death. All of these scenes that come before our mind. And as I said, there are several faces that we would think ought to be there, but aren't. But then in addition to all these faces in the crowd, and perhaps also in notable contrast to the absence of most of the twelve disciples, Mark wants us to notice that there were also some women, verse 40. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Less and Joseph and Salome. There were also some women. I wonder, when we think of the Passion narrative, when we think of Jesus' trial and his suffering and his death and the cross and the events surrounding it, I wonder how often these ladies come across our minds, Mary and Mary and Salome, and there were others there as well. I wonder how often when we rehearse Christ's final hours, how often do we actually remember the collection of women that were standing within sight of the cross and following Jesus all the way until the very end? We ought to remember them because of all the faces that come before our view in this passion narrative theirs it seems to me are among the most courageous and the most pure and the most exemplary unlike most of jesus 12 disciples these women are actually there and unlike most others who were present these women were not there just to gawk or to satisfy a thirst for blood they were there because they loved jesus and at least two of them Verse 47, wanted to see where he was laid when it was all over, so that in chapter 16 they might come and care for his body. Amid all the furor that surrounded the cross, and in contrast to all the darkness of that scene, there were also some women, some bold, courageous, 
dedicated, godly women. Mark names three of them for us, right? Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joseph and Salome. But Mark also tells us in verse 40 that these three were actually part of a larger group that were there to witness Jesus' crucifixion as well. There were also some women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Less and Joseph and Salome. They were just among a larger group of ladies who had followed Jesus all the way to the end. In fact, Matthew says that there were many women there that day who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. But Mark highlights three of them by name, Mary, Mary, and Salome, perhaps because these three were not only present at Golgotha on the Friday, but also present at Jesus' tomb on the Sunday. And these three women who clearly loved Jesus so much stand forever, really, as lovely and vital reminders of how important is the service of women to Christ and to his cause. Women are important to Christ, and they are vital cogs in his work. Now, as Bible believers, we're often quick to point out the differences between the roles of men and women, both in the home and in the church, and that's right, and it's necessary, and it's biblical. But often, maybe sometimes because of the pressure that's put on us by our culture, and sometimes just because we may be bent towards the negatives, often these discussions about women's roles seem to major on what women cannot do in the life of the Christian church, rather than highlighting all the beautiful ways that women can and should serve the Lord, and how those roles, while different, are just as important to the Lord as those of their male counterparts. So, in fact, a couple of weeks ago in our Q&A, I focused on this subject of what women are not to do in terms of speaking, teaching in the life of the church. And I trust that was helpful and it was an accurate reminder. But the example of these women tonight who follow Jesus all the way to the end will not allow us to focus our attention sim- simply on what women should not do. The women in Mark 15 are remembered not from what they refrained from doing, but for the courageous and kind and loving things that they actually did do. When Jesus came to die, it was the women folk who served him most faithfully. When Jesus came to die, it was the women folk who followed him to the end. It was the women who were there at Golgotha on that Friday. It was the women who came to care for, care for his body on the Sunday. And on that Sunday morning, it was to a group of women that the first angel, the angel first announced that Jesus has risen. And all of this should not be lost on us. We should note it well. Some of Jesus' most loyal followers, some of his best servants, some of his most courageous disciples, and some of his most privileged disciples were women. And that tells me that Jesus' female disciples are not on the margins of his purposes for the church, but they are at the very heart of his plans and his purposes. And I want us just to notice that all the way through tonight, the vital role that God has called women to play in the cause of Jesus Christ. And along the way, I want us all, male and female, to learn from three specific ways that these women 
served the cause of Christ. Three ways that these women served Jesus, and they will be examples to us all. So first of all, I want you to notice their courage. Their courage. These women served Jesus courageously. It took, I think, no small amount of bravery for Mary and Mary and Salome and the others who aren't named. It took no small amount of bravery for them to show up amid the crowds at Jesus' crucifixion that day, even if they were on the periphery, even if they were, as Mark says, looking on from a distance. They were courageous to show up there. None of Jesus' male disciples were there, save John. Now, all but Judas had been with Jesus the night before, right? It's not like they were out on a a trip somewhere. They had all been with him the night before. But when the mob came to arrest Jesus with swords and clubs, Mark tells us in chapter 14, they all left him and fled. They all left him and fled. This is referring, I'm fairly certain, to the twelve disciples. Those were the ones who were with Jesus that night. Those were the ones who fled. And they fled, I presume, because they were afraid. And understandably so, really. Because imagine if these guys are willing to arrest Jesus, what might they do with us if we choose to stand with him? Of course, that reason for fear would have still been present the next day at Golgotha. What with the Roman soldiers all there with their weaponry and the Jewish leaders standing, looking on and mocking these men who had orchestrated the whole thing and the crowds probably still bloodthirsty. You can imagine what the disciples may have thought. If I show up out there at Golgotha, if I go to witness Jesus being crucified and I'm found out as one of his disciples... I might be hanging right there with him. Those would have been very palpable fears, I think, for the disciples. And every one of us would probably have been quite uneasy had we been in the disciples' shoes. And while we don't exonerate them for fleeing the scene, I do say that I understand what they must have been feeling and how terrified they would have been to go stand around at Golgotha. And yet here's the point. Much reason as the men may have had to be afraid and not to show up, the women showed up. The women were there, even when the disciples, the male disciples, were not. And these were the same women, verse 41, who had been with Jesus when he was in Galilee and who were a regular part of his traveling party and who had come up with him to Jerusalem. In other words, these women probably, or at least perhaps, would have been just as recognizable as followers of Jesus as would some of his disciples. Because they had been with him all along too. Maybe they even spoke in a Galilean way, which was one of the things that gave Peter away. And yet they didn't shrink back when the furnace was turned up sevenfold. These women were there with Jesus all the way to the end. And though they didn't actually do anything for him as he hung there, pierced through for our transgressions, just the fact that they were there is worthy of praise, isn't it? There to support their master and their friend. There, perhaps, because they could not be there, given all that Jesus had taught and done and meant to them. There, perhaps, to pray for him, that God would grant him strength to fix his eyes on the joy set before him and to endure the cross. 
there to see where he was laid, verse 47, so that they could attend to his body when it was all finished. And I say it must have required incredible courage just for them to have been there. You may not think of courage or bravery as a distinctly feminine quality, but it ought to be. It can be. In fact, we we think not only of these women, I, I think of some of the early Christian martyrs. And when I think of some of the early Christian martyrs who suffered so brutally for their faith, two of the names that come to mind most immediately are women. Perpetua, whom some of you have heard of, and Blandina, whom you may have heard of as well. If you haven't heard their stories, go online and read about them. Both of them stood heroically, courageously for Jesus, even when they were placed in the middle of the arena to be torn apart by wild beasts. Two women, known for their courage. Moving on ahead through the centuries, I think of the two Margarets, whom I've told you about before, Margaret Wilson and Margaret McLaughlin, two of the most famous martyrs of the persecutions in 17th century Scotland. They were tied to stakes out in the sea and left there to drown with the incoming tide because they would not recant their allegiance to Jesus as king. And I say to you that that is what's needed in our day, courage. That's what will be needed all the more so as the world grows darker around us. Courage to stand for Jesus, come what may. Courage to stand for Jesus in the face of opposition and trial and danger and even potential death. And we learn it. We learn courage not just from great and strong men. Sometimes we don't learn it from men at all. Sometimes, as in this passage, we learn it from courageous women, women who fear God more than they fear anything else. I just wonder if we have any women like this in the room tonight. I wonder if we're raising up any little girls to be like Mary and Salome and Blandina and the two Margarets. And I wonder, both for men and for women, for boys and for girls, do we have this kind of courage to stand for Jesus even in the face of danger? Now, we don't face Christian martyrdom in this country yet. There are no arenas and no stakes and no crosses yet. And none of us are standing at a distance watching our friends abuse for Christ's sake like these women yet. But that time may come. And even now, there is still a call for courage in the Christian life, isn't there? There are many calls for it, but one is simply that we were talking on Sunday about letting our light shine before men, right? Being conspicuous in our testimony for Jesus. And isn't the reason why we sometimes fail to do that simply because we lack courage? We're afraid of what someone might say or do. But it needn't be this way. If Salome and Mary and Mary and many others could follow Jesus all the way to Golgotha, then surely we can follow Jesus wherever he may lead us to stand for him. So that's the first thing that these women have to teach us, and it is a trait that is well worthy of our own own imitation, even down to this day, courage. But then there's another way that these women serve the Lord Jesus. First of all, courage. And then secondly, contribution. Contribution. Notice what Mark says in verse 41 about 
how these women were serving Jesus even well before he ever went to the cross. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So this group of women, Mary, Mary, Salome, and many others, ministered to Jesus during the three years of his earthly ministry. They were with him when he was in Galilee, ministering to him. What does that mean? How are they ministering to him? Were they encouraging him? Were they cooking for him and his disciples? Were they looking after their health? What, what does it mean that they used to follow him and minister to him? I was trying to think about that a little bit today, and I came across the commentary, or opened the commentary of William Hendrickson on the Gospel of Mark, and in verse 41, he cross-referenced Luke chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, basically saying what we read here is what we read in Luke 8. And in Luke 8, verses 2 and 3, we learn that there was a group of women who supported Jesus and his disciples financially. These women were, quote, contributing to their support out of their private means. Contributing to the support of Jesus and his disciples out of their own personal pocketbooks. And so that is quite likely what is also in view here in Mark 15:41. These women ministered to Jesus by means of financial contribution. So picture it. Jesus and his disciples and others with them are traveling around, and they're giving themselves full time to the Lord's work. They're no longer working in their fishing boats. They're no longer laboring at the carpenter's shop. They're no longer involved in gainful employment. They're traveling around preaching and teaching the word. They're concentrating on gospel ministry full time, and so they don't have other income coming in. But they still have to eat, right? And sometimes their sandals are going to need repair or replacement after all that walking. And from time to time, clothes or other goods may be needed. And where are they going to get the money to pay for these things since they've left their nets, they've left their tax booths to follow Jesus? Well, like the Philippian church did for the Apostle Paul some years later, these women took it upon themselves to open their purses and make sure that the work could continue. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And again, it's interesting that it was a group of women who did this. You might think about that and think about how did they get the money? How did these women have enough money to support this traveling band of of preachers and teachers? How were they well enough off to pay for this ministry? Well, we don't know. But however they got the money, what matters most is that they're willing to give the money away to Jesus and his cause. They served Jesus, they served his cause by means of financial support. And to this day, many is a woman who does this very same thing, even with more humble means than these women seem to have had. Many is a woman who faithfully gives her two small copper coins to the Lord's work. Many is a woman who faithfully scrapes together her leftover grocery money every month and sticks it in a little jar so that she can give it to the missionaries. And it is a blessing. And it is a blessing that the men who do the teaching and the preaching cannot live without. 
Now, we hovered over this topic for a long time last week in Philippians 4, so I won't linger again tonight except to say that these women are an example to us all in the way that they just faithfully supported Jesus. You may have been reading the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John for years and years. Some of you may not be able to remember a time where you didn't know that those were the first four Gospels and you didn't know some of the stories that are contained in them, the accounts of Jesus' life. But it's possible that as many times as you may have read through the Gospel accounts, it's possible that you may never have once stopped to think, now how could Jesus and his disciples afford to eat since they had no regular jobs? Where did they get the money in John chapter 4, to go into the city and buy food while Jesus stayed behind and ministered to the woman at the well. It may never have occurred to you to wonder about Jesus' finances. And maybe the reason it never occurred to you is because it was never an issue for Jesus. Jesus had a heavenly Father who always provided what was needed, and his heavenly Father had these generous women who were always there, it seemed, to meet the needs of the hour, so that the topic of the mission's financial status rarely ever needed to be brought up. It was just taken care of by faithful people, and that's the way that it should be. God's people ought to faithfully support gospel work so that finances are never an issue so that Jesus, ministers, and missionaries today just have what they need without having to talk about it. So then, these women serve Jesus by means of courage, by means of contribution, and thirdly, by means of compassion. Compassion. There were many women that day, followers of Jesus, looking on from a distance as he was crushed for our iniquities, but at least two of them hung around till it was all over. At least two of them waited for Joseph of Arimathea to gather up courage and request custody of Jesus' body. And then they followed Joseph as he carried the Lord's remains to a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock. And we read in verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. Why did they want to see where he was laid? Why did they need to know where Jesus had been buried? Well, at least one reason, very practically, was because on Sunday morning, chapter 16, these two Marys, along with Salome, were going to return to the tomb and bring the spices they had bought and come anoint Jesus' body and give him a proper burial. And their commitment to do that shows great love great compassion to follow through on a friendship all the way until it seemingly ended in death and to follow that through on that friendship even beyond death. Jesus' spirit, like yours will someday do, had temporarily parted from his body, but these faithful women still cared for that body. It was those hands which had healed the sick, right? It was those feet which had brought good news. It was those lips which had proclaimed forgiveness and sent the evil spirits out of the life of this very same Mary Magdalene. And these ladies loved those hands and those feet and those lips. They loved Jesus so much that they cared even for his lifeless body. They did this 
act of compassion and delicacy and tenderness for him. And without exonerating us men from showing this kind of compassion and tenderness, isn't this one of the distinct gifts that God so often gives to women? The ministry of compassion and mercy? You get a sympathy card in the mail or a get well card. Isn't the handwriting usually in feminine script? And isn't it the ladies who usually think of bringing food when someone in the church is sick or bereaved? And isn't there a reason why it's usually women teaching the children's Sunday school classes? And when I go to preach in the nursing home, the Christian hands and feet that are there serving the elderly and pushing their wheelchairs down the hall to the chapel service are usually female hands and feet. All of these areas of ministry to Jesus' people are ministries to Jesus himself, right? And these ministries to Jesus' people require tenderness and mercy and compassion. And while we men ought to be just as involved as the ladies and to lead our whole families in ministries of mercy and compassion, you ladies are often the ones who are particularly gifted in this area and who lead the way. And you must see that as one of your primary roles in Christ's church. It's a vital role. It's a sorely needed role. And it is as fragrant to Jesus when you give this kind of mercy and compassion as were those spices that the women brought to the tomb that first resurrection Sunday. It's true, yes, no church can survive and no home can thrive without the leadership and the biblical instruction that God calls upon men to give. But the church will be equally imperiled and the home equally impoverished without the specific gifts and callings that God has given to women. And the ministry of compassion is near the top of that list. Some of Jesus' most outstanding followers were and always have been women. And these ladies in Mark 15, Mary, Mary, and Salome, rank right up there near the top. Let's all of us, men and women, girls and boys, let's all of us learn from these women and imitate their courage for the sake of Jesus their contribution to his work, their compassion in the hour of need. And let me urge you women and you girls especially to be encouraged by their faith. God has important things for you as a woman to do for his name and in his church. You keep reading the New Testament and you'll discover that again and again, that women are not marginal to the work of Christ and to the mission of his church, but they are right at the heart of God's purposes. We don't know exactly what heaven will be like or what our experiences will be when we live forever in the new earth, but church history lover that I am, I hope that there might be some evenings there where Jesus or one of his angels will pull God's records down from the shelves and just read aloud to us the great victories that God has won through the saints of old. I hope we'll have a chance in heaven to hear the stories retold of the prophets like Moses and Daniel and the apostles like Peter and Paul and the others whose missionary labors beyond the book of Acts we know less about. I hope we'll get to rehear the tales of great preachers like Ambrose of Milan and Spurgeon and Whitfield and Luther and Lloyd-Jones. I hope we'll get to hear the stories again of missionaries like Eliot and Peyton and Patrick 
I hope the Lord will fill us in on his great gospel victories through lesser-known men as well, preachers and pastors and missionaries and deacons and laymen whom we've never heard of, so that we can applaud not these men, but God who works so mightily in earthen vessels. What a thrill it would be to have the Lord give us, in other words, the extended play version of Hebrews chapter 11. And then I can just imagine when we think the stories can't get any better, when we think the stars can't shine any brighter for the Lord, I can just imagine God turning the page to a new chapter, a chapter filled with just as many and just as great stories as the previous one, and beginning his tale with a phrase like this one, there were also some women. 